0: I got a real simple question for you. Have you ever tried hard to be good? Like, that's the whole question. That's just, have you ever tried hard to be good? It's like three of you who've tried to be good. Well, that explains a lot. Uh, what, like, how was that gone? You try hard to be good. How was that gone? Not, at times, okay, it doesn't really last. It, it, it seems to me, speaking for myself, I can try hard to be good and do okay for a little while, at least from my perspective. But it doesn't really last. And I'm oftentimes left with the overwhelming overwhelming feeling of, I just don't measure up. I just don't. Like, as it? It doesn't matter how bad I want to measure up. There are times, especially when I'm in church, when I'm just kind of hit by that feeling of, what are you doing? I, I, you probably have never felt that way because you're probably a lot better than I am. But, but for me, I thought it doesn't matter how, how hard I try, how much I want to, it, oftentimes I end up feeling Like I'm just not good enough. Grace is one of those things that when I think I got it, God has a very unique way of revealing to me that I don't get it. It's one of those things that I've spent a lot of years trying to understand. Uh, And just about the time I think, okay, I'm starting to get a handle on this. God has a way of revealing to me. Um, how much I don't understand and how inadequate I still am. So I started this series called Scandalous Grace because here's what I I believe from, from Scripture. Grace is most powerful and profound when it's married up against something that's scandalous. The greater the scandal the more profound and magnificent grace is. And so I started this series that I want to call Scandalous Grace because until you understand a scandal, you never understand a grace. When you look at world religions, every other religion in the world other than Christianity is predicated on what humanity can do for God. Every other religion in the world other than Christianity, is predicated on what man can do for God. Christianity is the only faith, the only religion that's predicated on what God has already done for humanity. And what God has done for humanity was manifested by Jesus' death on a cross and perpetuated in what God continues to do for his followers through grace. What God continues to do manifested through Jesus on the cross, perpetuated in what he continues to do for those who follow him by grace. In 2 Peter, there's this this one verse I want to use kind of as our theme verse on why I'm teaching this series. 2 Peter 3.18, it's almost this command, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's almost to, 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 to make sure that you grow in what? In knowledge, grace. In grace and knowledge, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The command is to grow in the knowledge of it and the experience and acquisition of it. See, to grow in the knowledge of grace means to grow in the understanding and the knowledge of what it is, where it originates from, and how it's accessed. And we have to grow in that knowledge to know what grace is, where it originates, and how to access it. But also, the command is to grow in the experience of grace, in the experience of what grace is in your life, and what grace is over your life, and what grace is through your life. See, grace... It's not just something we know. Grace has got to become the atmosphere we exist in. Not just something we're aware of, the atmosphere. It's got to become the environment in which we move and have our very being. Here's what I think. I think a lot of people treat grace like a thermometer rather than a thermostat. Just think about the difference. A thermometer just simply reports the conditions of the environment. Stick a thermometer in something, all it does is report the conditions of it. A thermostat sets the conditions of the environment. And I think a lot of us treat grace like a thermometer rather than a thermostat. In other words, we can see when it's apparent, but we don't know how to create the environment of it. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? So let's just say it's another one of those Fresno 106 days outside. And I say, come on into this room and hand you a thermometer. Is that going to do you any good? No. All it's going to do is report to you the environment. Uh, Now, if I brought you in a room and said, now here's a thermostat, that changes the environment. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, here's the thing. I feel like this is pretty simple to understand at this point. And what I'm getting from you is this. Yeah. Like, Like, give me something. I feel like I'm on the verge of preaching better on what you're listening again, and I get tired of that after a while. So so work with me here. You you understand what I'm saying right now about the thermostat and thermometer thing, right? Okay, that's better. Thank you. See, grace, people in church understand this part about grace, that it's critical to get into heaven. Ephesians 2.8 says you're saved by grace through faith. We understand that. But what we miss is grace is also critical to get heaven to us. That's where we miss. See, religion emanates from us to God. Grace emanates from God to us. And so Peter says, grow in grace and in knowledge. Real simple understanding about grace. Grace is what God does for us, independent of us. Grace is God's hand moves for us, independent of anything we do. There's a major and marked difference between the Old Testament law and New Testament grace. And here's what has happened. Many people follow Jesus, the New Testament Jesus, because we like that version of God. We like the loving part, the one who, you know, accepts people. He's full of mercy and grace. We like that part. But our problem is, though we like that part of God's manifestation of himself in Jesus, we still associate with God according to the Old Testament. In other words, religion. We think that we have to do things to be right with him. And so though we're attracted to the New Testament Jesus, the embodiment of grace, we still relate to God based on the Old Testament law that says the more I do, the better I do, the more God is pleased with me. And we start to follow God. We learn to follow him based on an Old Testament understanding of law, of learning a a to-do list of what we do and what we don't do. Now, that's all fine and good when you're little. When my boys were little, Shel and I had a long list of do's and don'ts because I didn't trust them in their infancy to understand daddy's heart. And so I had to give them a list of do's and don'ts, right? Okay, well, here's the thing. Caleb, he just turned 21 yesterday. That's funny to you? And so this last week, last Sunday, we left after church, and we were up at this beautiful resort up at uh, Lake Tahoe. And the whole family, me, Shell, Caleb, Wyatt, Joe, Miranda, my little grandson, we all had a great time. He turned 21 yesterday. Notice where I am not. He's still there. So Shell and I, Joe, Miranda, we all left Friday. And we left Caleb and Wyatt. 21 and 19, why are you laughing already? I hadn't said nothing funny. His girlfriend, her two friends, and six other guys went up to join them Friday, Saturday, and today. (laughs) Thank you, I appreciate it. And so I told these guys, I said, look, my name and my credit card are on this resort. I'm just turning over to you guys. Be as smart as you need to be. Now, listen, I didn't leave my son a list of do's and don'ts because he's past that. And I trust him to live in freedom understanding the father's heart do you understand what i'm saying what would it have been and what would it have said about him if i said boy now that you're 21 here's my list of do's and don'ts how much would that discredit his manhood and what would that say about my trust in my son and so in wisdom i take the brakes off So yeah, pray for us. <laughs> but see, I think, we, I, th- I think this is our understanding of God, though. Like, like we might not say it, but here's, what, here's where we go wrong. We think the more good we do, the better we are, the more God is pleased, so the more he'll bless. The more good we do, the better we are, the more God is pleased, so the more he'll bless. The more good, good we do, the better we are, the more God's pleased, the more he'll bless. And conversely, we think the same. The less we do, the worse we are. The less God is pleased, the less he'll bless. And we end up relating to this beautiful Jesus in the context of law. Don't, 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 do, 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 because if I don't do the wrong things and I do do the right things, the more he'll be pleased with me, the more he'll bless me. Guess what that does? Nullifies grace. Completely nullifies it. See, many of us still believe that good behavior, i.e. law, is the way to move God's hand on our behalf. And many never understand the one mechanism, the one mechanism for victory, the one mechanism for peace, the one mechanism for power, the one mechanism for joy, the one mechanism for abundant life comes from the one word, grace. And this is why Peter said, grow in grace and knowledge. Because you'll get the benefit of it. So I think we've done a good job in the church, some of helping people grow in knowledge, but not necessarily grow in grace. And the problem is when we've taught people to grow in knowledge and not grace, they end up using knowledge as a sledgehammer. Do you understand? So Paul says in Galatians 3, in writing to the church in Galatia, Paul says this before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our, what's the word he uses? Guardian. Guardian. The law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer what? Say it with your mouths open. Under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. Paul likens the law, the list of do's and don'ts religiously to people under guard and on lockdown. And Paul, this word that Paul uses, guardian, has, there's two aspects to this guardianship. One is protection. The guardian was designed to protect. But the other aspect behind this word that Paul is drawing on is harshness. And the law, the guardian, protects us from danger and temptation, but it is also harsh. It's rough. This word guardian that Paul is drawing on comes from an actual person in the family whose specific job was to perform his duty on behalf of the father of the family as a harsh disciplinarian and guardian of the child. And the child's responsibility was to strict adherence and obedience to the guardian. And the main job of the guardian was to take the child from home to school and from school to home. The job of the guardian was not to teach. The job of the guardian was not to instruct. The the, the job of the guardian was not to tell. The job of the guardian was simply to protect and to keep in line from the place of home to the place of instruction. It was not to instruct itself. They were only to lead the student to the instructor. And as a result, religiously, what Paul is saying here is that the law has been perverted from a protector to a harsh disciplinarian of legalism that only makes the student aware of their failures but does not instruct in the way of life. That's what Paul's saying here. He says the law protects us but cannot deliver us from evil. Only the father can do that the law isn't our instructor the law just leads us to the instructor the law isn't the way to the, the law is the way to the father but the law is not the father the law shows the way to freedom but there's no freedom in the law and you will now hear me on this please hear me on this you and i will never find freedom from our failure by trying harder to be more obedient to a list of rules And if you've ever struggled in your life with breaking free of that thing that has enslaved you, that has bound you, that has kept you captive to behaviors, habits, hurts, if you've ever found yourself, I just can't break free, you will never find freedom from that by a set of list of rules. we will never set you free. And what Paul says here is that in Christ, you and I, if we're in Christ, are now no longer under a guardian. There is complete liberation. This is why Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, not the corrective guardian. Do you understand? That's why Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He doesn't say, I'm your corrective guardian. And so it amazes me how people in church Though we say we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, want to be His, Him incarnate in the world, the image of Christ to people who are, then why do we insist on being the corrective guardian of other people? That's not who He said He was. He said He set us free from that. You understand what I'm saying? Come on, man! Like, like this is huge. So if you really want to be like Jesus, be less of a corrective guardian for everybody else and more like a good shepherd that comes alongside, right? See, it's not that the law is bad. The law is good and the law is necessary and the law is beneficial when it's used for what God intended it to be used of. And Paul says as much to this guy, Timothy, that he's bringing up. He says, we know that the law is good when used correctly, For the law was not intended for people who do what's right. It's intended for people who are lawless and rebellious. It says the the, the guardian, the law, is good for a child who wanders away. Because when a child steps out of line, daddy's hand gets heavy. Right? But for those who have been set free from the guardian, there's no sense anymore of being tied to it. You're set free from it. This is what grace is. And this is what most people miss. Because you grow up in a religious system that teaches obedience to behavioral modification and never gets to the heart of the Father. Watch this. This is what grace is. Grace is favor. Grace comes from a superior to an inferior. Grace is the unmerited favor and blessing. Now, get this. It's the inexhaustible supply, means it never runs out. The inexhaustible supply of favor where God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Grace is God's favor poured on us in abundance, though we don't deserve it and could never repay it. Now, get this. Here's, here's, Here's what a strange thing. Christianity is. This is how strange God designed things. Things To try to deserve favor, to try to repay favor, nullifies favor. Understand this. Grace is the undeserved and unmerited favor, the inexhaustible supply of God's favor that he pours on us. The moment in your mind or your heart you revert back to being good so that he will or trying to repay what he's done, you nullify favor. It's gone. Though it comes so freely from God's hand, it is sacrificed so readily by thinking we can do something to make him pleased with us. So he'll do something for us. The only right response to grace, the only right response to God's unmerited favor It's joy and happiness for receiving something you don't get, you don't deserve. It's just joy. It's joy and happiness. Like when you understand the magnitude of God's grace given to somebody. Like if if you were to know who I am. The favor that God's given me. When my son turned, you know, he's turned to 21. And a couple days ago I told him, I said, Caleb, here's the thing, man. I'm so proud of you. For many reasons, just for who you are, but who you are at 21 is so far beyond who I was at 21. I mean, they don't even compare, you. Like that apple did not fall close to this tree. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that apple not even apple. That's some like it's it's a different, completely. Like, had your mama knew me when I was 21, you would not exist right I mean, you know, I'm just I'm just. But you look at the favor God's given me. Like when I look at that, the the only response I can have is just joy and happiness. Like, oh my gosh. Freaking hit the lottery with this one. Like, this is ridiculous. And the tragedy, here's the tragedy. Is many don't realize what grace is nor how to access it because you've not grown in it. Did you realize that you can miss, you can be in church your whole life and miss grace. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Where did that verse go? See to it, That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Don't miss this. See, grace is the favor that God has placed on us, independent of us. Independent. See, a lot of people come to church very faithfully, all the while canceling the benefit of grace on their life. Can you imagine? This is why people can live in defeat year after year after year, all the while becoming more and more religious. And this is why so many people walk away from church when they get older. Because they've missed grace. They got religion, but they miss grace. So I've, I've seen it time and time again. Children who grow up in church walk away from church when they get older. Why? Because they follow an old way of religious behavior, never fully experiencing the full measure and the magnitude of God's incredible freedom and grace. While striving for good behavior, they fall short and always feel condemned and they grow weary of the heavy burden of religion and expectation. And so they walk away. And what they're walking away from is religion because once you've tasted grace, you ain't leaving that. Let me just say this. If your Christian life, if your Christian experience has become miserable and hard work and just to struggle, to strive, to be more obedient, you need to grow in grace before you fall from faith. You understand? If it's just like God, I'm trying so hard, I just can't get it right. God, I'm I'm working my butt, I'm trying, I'm work, I'm striving. It's just hard. You need to experience grace because if you don't, you're gonna fall from faith and walk out on the most liberating, transformational freedom you were ever meant to experience. See, grace is God's word for liberation. And grace is to be this new world in which we operate. Not just something we know about, not just something that gets us to heaven. It's supposed to be this new world in which we operate. But unfortunately, it's a world that we've not been trained to live in. And as a result, by default... We end up operating in one of two ways because we haven't been trained to live in grace. We end up operating in one of two ways. One, we fail to operate in grace at all. And we become good religious folk that when we do our religion rightly, we get self-arrogant and self-righteous and look at, down upon others who fail. Or secondly, we operate in a foot, one foot in both worlds. One foot in grace that says, God, you've been good to me, I don't deserve it. And the other foot that says, Man, but I messed up so bad, you, I don't deserve anything from you, and I feel horrible about myself. And when I do do right, I look down on others who don't do right. And we live with one foot in both worlds. What the Bible says about that? It says, A double-binded man is unstable in all he does. So it just doesn't fit, doesn't work. See, here's the thing, man: Grace is the key to your Christian experience, it's not behavior. I'd say it's not even obedience. It's grace. You see, here's the thing. Get this. I've thought of this right now. Obedience doesn't drive grace. Grace drives obedience. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, like, like oh, grace isn't birthed out of obedience. Obedience is birthed out of grace. It's the seedbed for. So what's the problem? Is we tried so hard to be obedient, we never got to grace because grace uh, obedience can't create grace. The moment we focus on grace, understand how scandalous it is. That burrs obedience. But the moment we try to be obedient so that we get favor, it nullifies favor altogether. The hard part is staying in grace. That was pretty good right there. I'm just saying. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just. <laughs> like I need to help you all along and help you know when you heard something that was worth saying. See, grace is the inexhaustible supply of God's favor and goodness, inexhaustible. And though it is free and inexhaustible, we can nullify it by striving to earn his favor by our behavior. And that's my fear that many of us have nullified the grace of God by trying to earn His favor by our behavior. And it seems so contrary to the way it should be. See, it's grace, not obligation. That makes me give more, that makes me serve more, that makes me love more. Not in an effort to repay God for his unmerited goodness. It's simply a reflection of my admiration of his allocation of his favor. That was good right there too. You missed it. You missed that one too. It's simply a reflection of my admiration of his allocation of his favor. I, I know I've got to be done pretty quick here, but I've got, got a story in the Bible I want to tell you where grace was kind of uh, exemplified. Can I, can I share it with you? Yes. Is that right? All right. So in John 8, there's this passage, this story of Jesus as he's interacting with these people. And this is what the Bible says. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the what? There it is. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They brought in a woman caught in adultery. Can we all agree at this point in her life she's probably not living righteously? We agree with that? Okay. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the What? In the law, Moses what? Suggested? Commanded. The law commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any... Uh, one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Look at this. Then neither do I condemn you, Go now and leave your life of sin. There's a lot to unpack in that passage, but I wanna wanna focus on one aspect of this. There's a lot there, I wanna focus on one aspect. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. What was the first thing Jesus did? What did he do? What did he actually do? He wrote in the dust, right? He, He wrote in the dust. And then pressed, he showed mercy. He gave grace, and then he did one more thing after that. What did he do again? He wrote in the dirt. Two separate times. Here's this woman. This is what the law says. He writes in the dirt. He gives mercy and grace, then writes in the dirt again. Wouldn't you love to know what it was he wrote? (laughs) That would be so cool. If I could just know what that was. Because then I could just go around writing stuff in the dirt like that. And just have people leave, you know. Like, I'm going to talk to you and write something on the dirt. Like to answer every question, just write something in the dirt. I've heard a lot of people talk about what he wrote in the dirt. Nobody knows. But I've heard people say stuff like this. Well, I think he was writing names of people that they had committed sin with. Yeah. I think they were, he, you know, people, Jesus say, well, I think Jesus was writing their names down to remind them that they were the guilty, you know, all this stuff. That's all good and well, I guess. I, I don't have any biblical proof for that. What I want to do when I don't know an answer is go back to the Bible. And so I found something in the Bible, I think, tells us what he wrote. Do you want to know what it is? Yes. So these guys, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they knew what we would call the Old Testament. They knew the law. They knew the prophets. They knew all this stuff. They knew the stories. They knew what the prophets had said. There was a a way of rabbinical teaching where rabbis would teach. Where they would just start the first phrase of a passage of scripture and then their students being educated would fill in the rest. We do the same thing. and You understand, like if I were to say, I am not a... Quick, you older ones understand that. That was Richard Nixon. Okay. I know I'm probably too old for some of that. But how about this one? I did not have set. You can fill in the rest of that, right? Okay, I just put it in context here. Um, so, so actually, and this is how Jesus taught a lot. When Jesus was on the cross and he said the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of people say, well, he was actually experiencing the father turn his back on him. And that might be true, but as a rabbi, what he was doing was quoting Psalm 22. Because that starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And immediately all the religious people around there are filling in the blanks because Psalm 22 was a messianic psalm talking about the Messiah that would come for the forgiveness of his sins. So that's how Jesus taught, that's how the rabbis taught. So to do something different here would not be in character in line with the rabbi. So he probably scribbled something that would drive their minds back to a passage of which they knew. Watch this. Jeremiah 17, 3, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you, Jehovah God, will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be what? Mm. They'll be written in the dust because they forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Just prior to John 8 is John 7 where Jesus got in talking about him as the living water. And so when he stoops down and starts writing Jeremiah 7, not the, but the, these words of this passage, their minds go back. Those of us who revert to the law over grace have forfeited and sacrificed and forsaken Jehovah God. And so they bring this woman and what do they say about her? According to the law, she's broken it. It's demanded by Moses. And Jesus starts writing this text and immediately they're forced to come to the reconciliation. Uh, Is it law or is it grace? What does she deserve? What are we going to give? Those who turn away from you, in essence, turn from grace to law will be written in the dust because you've forsaken Jehovah. When you hold law over grace, you forsake God. When you turn away from grace back to law, we've forsaken God. The thing I love about this passage, other than that, get ready for this. What they knew is the next part of this passage that we don't know. Look at verse 14. Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. Isn't that the response of the woman? Isn't Jeremiah 17 fulfilled in John 8? When those she was brought by those who would condemn her to death according to the law she gets grace from Jesus and her only response is lord heal me and i will be healed though they want to throw stones i am healed though they want to condemn me i will be saved it is not them that i praise it is you that i praise do you understand Do you notice what Jesus is doing? to those bent on the law, the woman who deserves condemnation because of her behavior, he writes in the dust and reminds them, because you've turned your back on grace, you've forsaken God. You focused on on what the one deserved rather than the undeserved favor. Now, though grace grants great freedom, it does not negate our responsibility. Now, it's true. We're completely free in Christ. And let me just tell you this. This is a very dangerous message for a pastor to preach to his church. Very dangerous. Because here's what it does. It robs from me my power... To hold you responsible to my rules. That's what it does. It it, it makes me powerless to manipulate your obedience. And that's why most pastors don't preach it. Because many pastors have mastered the subtle power of spiritual abuse. And if I can get you to be convinced that you have to obey me rather than live in freedom of grace... I lose my power. Do you understand? Like I lose my ability to manipulate your obedience to what I want. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And so for pastors, this is like a dangerous message to preach because all of a sudden... I take the brakes off your life. I take the brakes off your religious experience and your relationship with Jesus. Now what? You're just free to do what you want? The correct answer is yes. Absolutely. Though you are free to do what you want and respond to Jesus however you see fit, It does not negate our responsibility, not to me, but to him. Now, what is true? We are completely free in Christ. But in Paul, teaching the Corinthian church about grace and about freedom, they had a saying, well, everything's permissible. And Paul would add to that, yes, true, but not everything is beneficial. And they would say, ah, but everything's permissible. He would say, absolutely, that's true, but not everything is constructive. Though you may have freedom, though all things are now permissible... Not so that I will be a good religious person, but because I love God more than I love my freedom, I will keep myself from certain things that will put me in bondage and keep me free from expressing my love for God. So out of my love for God more than my love for my freedom, I will keep myself free from certain things. Does that makes sense? So now I am free to respond to him out of my love relationship with him, not bound to any law. Though because I love him more than I love my freedom, I will make sure that I stay free from those things that will put me in bondage. I'm telling you, grace is liberating. And this is how Christianity is supposed to work. This is it. And when grace is rightly understood, man, it makes me fall more in love with Jesus. And as I fall more in love with Jesus, I will do more for Jesus. Not because I have to, not because I want to be a good religion, because I love and I am amazed by this grace that he's given me. Man, if you only know. If you only, and I'm not going to tell you, but if you only knew who I was and who I am, you would rightfully say, It is not right that God has blessed you like He has. That's not right. And I would say, <laughs> Exactly. That's why it's awesome. That's why I love it. That's why I have such appreciation. Like, his grace is so scandalous and so profound. There's no way. See, rightly understanding grace is the key to greater obedience and faithfulness. Not because you have to anymore. Just out of their response. Come on up here, Rick, please. I'm going to keep going. i got to be done. Romans 5.2, I love that passage. And basically it says, you've given us by faith access into your grace by which you are favorably disposed towards us. By faith, you've given us access into your grace by which you are favorably disposed towards us. Did you realize that God desires to be favorably disposed towards you like he desires to see you and give his favor to you? He desires to be favorably disposed towards you, not because of your strict obedience to a list of rules, do's do's and don'ts, disposed towards you favorably, not because of your own righteousness, favorably disposed towards you, not because you're better than your neighbor, favorably disposed towards you because of his grace. But in order to access that, you have to have faith that this is the way of God. If you don't have faith that this is the way of God, you will always revert back to behavior, to strict obedience, to being self-righteous when you are and condemning others when they're not. And you will nullify the grace of God that he desires to pour on, and be favored favorably disposed to wake up in the morning knowing that by God's grace he is favorably disposed to you that day that is amazing to me and when i look at God and I look at that kind of scandalous grace i know who i am and my only response is to live with joy because of that undeserved favor that that joy of that god is my strength father thank you for your undeserved and unmerited unrelenting favor on my i don't deserve it i've not earned it i can never pay it back it just simply shows how magnificent you are and i'll gladly be that spokesperson you understand what i'm saying like god that is the grace that i want you to pour out on my life So if you've experienced that grace, one thing, you live joyfully. Rules and laws will make you live miserably. Grace will cause you to live joyfully. That's your response. But secondly, your response is to give that kind of grace to others when they screw it up. You understand? That's the hard part right here now see the greater their mess up the greater the grace you get to show and when you show grace like that that's what makes you like god there's no limit to his grace so when that person has done that and when those people continue to and when you're in that situation and it continues to get the more grace, the more grace, the more grace you give. And it's in that grace giver that you become the image of God in that environment. Do you understand? And thereby creating the atmosphere of grace that we were designed to live in. got it? We can say we got it. But this ain't going to be imparted but by the spirit of God and the grace of God. So what say we ask him for? Pray with me, Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the first grace giver and you are the great grace embodiment. I thank you that you've not asked us anymore to live by a set of rules, that you've not asked us to live anymore by the law to try to make you pleased with us. Thank you that you've given us the freedom and the liberality to live in this thing called grace. And so we approach your throne of grace with freedom and confidence, knowing nothing we've done nor who we are deserves your blessing nor your favor. We don't come to you under pretense. We don't come to you with a false sense of self-righteousness because in us there is nothing good. We simply come to you in the presence of your grace, in freedom, with confidence, asking you to overwhelm us with the goodness and the magnificence of your grace. Keep us from behavioral modification trying to earn your favor. Help us in this moment by the presence of the Holy Spirit simply to appreciate, take joy in, and exist in the envelopment of your grace. Father, we love you. We love you. We love you. And we're ready for more. We're ready for more than religion. We're ready for more than rules. We're ready for more than a list of do's and don'ts. We're ready for more. Let's worship.